0: Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at TPRDFW.com. Uh, so did just get back from uh, being with the co-op out in California. and. We had such an awesome time. We were planning the upcoming National House of Prayer Leadership Summit that we're going to be hosting here in February. Uh, and then uh, we just had so much fun just making fun of each other and having such a fun time. Uh, Jim Stillwell, who's my oldest buddy in the group, um, we've been running together for maybe 12 years or something, um, he, uh, in the midst of a bunch of planning and such, he started murmuring uh, amongst the room, uh, and I was like, what's going on? What what is being said? And uh, he said that um, he was just telling everybody that I came out of the womb holding a black dry erase marker. And I thought, you know, it's probably true. Not real sure what we did with that original dry erase marker, but... (laughs) Um, Anyway, we just had so much fun. It was just such a good time strengthening one another. And, you know, there are times where there are members of that co-op that are really going through it. And one of them is right now. And we were able to really encourage them and just speak into them and, you know, pray for them and help them. And and then there's other times where there's, you know, members of that co-op that are really doing great, that are an encouragement to others of us. Uh, One of the cool things this go-round was... Uh, just some crazy things that are happening uh, up in uh, New Jersey at Eastern Gate, New Jersey, and uh, IHOP Eastern Gate. and Just what the Lord's doing for them, and just some expansion stuff, and just really, really encouraging. So I'll just tell you, it's been that co-op has been a lifesaver for me personally as a leader, and then has been uh, just essential for the strengthening and the building of the House of Prayer across the United States. It's been really, really awesome. So I'm, I'm just grateful. Anytime I'm on one of those trips, and you guys are praying. For For me. Uh, I just want to let you know I really appreciate that because those are sovereign moments for us. So, okay, well, we're going to jump into Revelation uh, tonight. Um, Tonight's session is the harvest of the earth. So I'm going to pray and uh, then we'll jump in. Father, we ask you for grace tonight as we read the word and study it and we talk about this incredible, but also a bit mysterious subject that we find uh, in Revelation 14 and elsewhere about the harvest of the earth. And so we ask you, God, for you to speak to us tonight, for you to release clarity in Jesus' name. Well, uh, book of Revelation, our study here, uh, harvest of the earth this uh, harvest that we see in revelation it's a theme that's um, actually got some um, some pieces some corresponding uh, passages in revelation but then also a number of other places in the New Testament and so this is a glorious and much prophesied reality this harvest of the earth um, but while that's the case what we're going to see tonight at least in the context that we're going to read which i think is kind of the ultimate uh, fulfillment the ultimate context of the harvest. The subject of evangelism and even the subject of the lost being saved isn't exactly the same thing as the harvest. Uh, we're going to look at the harvest as actually a broader subject than that. Uh, the lost being saved is a prerequisite for the harvest, but the lost being saved isn't actually what's being referred to Uh, as the harvest uh, here in the book of Revelation. So if that's a new idea to you, uh, maybe keep your ears perked and you'll hear how that's the case. Well, there is a great revival coming to the earth. And this revival, um, more than anything, this great revival is a reflection of the father's uh, heart to grow his house. This revival that's coming is really a reflection of the Lord's desire to make the family bigger. He wants a big family. He's a family guy. And this revival that's coming is really a way to, uh, to impact that in the most profound way. Uh, 2 Peter 2, you guys know this passage, but it just it really helps communicate what the coming revival is about. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's interesting every time we see something in the word of God that reflects the desires of God that are not being fully met. God desires righteousness. Well, we look at the planet right now. That's He's not getting that uh, to the fullness by any means. God desires that none would perish, but yet men choose on righteousness. Mankind chooses to go their own way. And so we're actually robbing the father of something he really, really, really wants. He wants humans to be in right partnership with him so that they can spend eternity with him. Not wanting any to perish. So when we talk about this coming revival, because that's a piece of this great harvest conversation that we're having tonight. When we talk about this revival, it's really a reflection of... This second Peter verse, God not wanting anyone to perish, uh, but that they would come to repentance so they could join His family and be a part of what He's doing forever. All right, so the first part of this harvest that's coming is revival that comes before the harvest. Second is the rapture of the redeemed. It's a, another component of this, not necessarily in order here, but another component of what's going on in this harvest, and that is Jesus getting his inheritance. So it's not just that uh, that they were uh, that they were saved, but that they made it through the great tribulation, that they survived in love with Him. And now Jesus gets his uh, inheritance, which of course requires that revival happens first. So as uh, Jesus is sending the gospel out across the earth, it will eventually touch every nation, tribe, and tongue. And then Jesus is going to come back for his church. Look at Matthew twenty-four, fourteen. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The gospel has to go forth in the whole world. Every tribe, language, tongue, people, group, so that they might be given the opportunity to come to know him, so that they might join the family, and many will. And then the end will come. So we need to understand, this is a little timing indicator, the end cannot possibly come until the gospel has gone everywhere. And I don't mean half preached once. It's got to be saturated so that that group, that region, that people have got the opportunity to turn to Jesus like so many other nations have had the opportunity. All right, what's another piece of this harvest at the end of the age? Surprisingly, if you didn't already know this, a part of the harvest at the end of the age is the reaping of the reprobate. Now the reprobate just means those that cannot be saved at this point. They will not give their lives to Jesus. They are reprobate in their heart. They have fully aligned with Satan. They've taken the mark of the beast. They don't want to repent. They're not going to repent. They can't repent. They have gone the full distance and given themselves fully over to Satan and made covenant with Satan. You could say they got saved into Antichrist instead of saved into Christ. They have have given themselves fully over. They've given a full covenant over to Satan and they are now going to share Satan's inheritance uh, just like those that give themselves to Jesus will share in Jesus's inheritance. Well, part of this is a big significant part of what's going on in this harvest at the end of the age we're going to see. It's not just the righteous being harvested. It's also the wicked being harvested as well. And they're going to get what they are due and they will suffer a wide variety of fates because the Lord has a variety of methods of which to harvest this group of people. Whoever sows to please the flesh from their flesh will reap destruction. This is just, you know, a verse that we know, you know, coming out of Galatians. But it's one that's probably never been more applicable than the harvest at the end of the age. Because that's when it's actually going to reach its fullness. That's when Paul, when he was prophesying that in Galatians, it's when it's actually going to reach its fulfillment. And it all unfolds in a very real way. Well, Let's now go through each one of these three things. The revival that precedes the harvest, then there's the harvest of the redeemed, and then there's the harvest of the reprobate. Let's look at all three of these with just a little bit of detail. So starting, uh, top of page two, the revival that comes before the harvest, a great revival is coming. Uh, it's, It's God's heart for this. I just mentioned that a minute ago. There will never have been so many people alive in the earth as at the uh, period of the time you know, when Jesus is releasing this great harvest, is uh, bringing about this revival, there will never have been so many people on the earth. So if God would have ever done a big revival in human history and it would have touched, you know, uh, touched the whole planet and therefore would have brought in some massive number, that number would have always been smaller than it would be at the end of the age. If there's one big revival of which there have been many little ones and even some, you know, not so little ones. But if there's one big revival in human history, and there's going to be, you want it to be at the very end because it's going to impact the most amount of souls. Okay? A countless number, it says here in Revelation 7, 9 through 14. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation. So the question is, how many is this? I mean, if it's a number that no one can count, that's a big number. (laughs) Uh, Of every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Important detail. For those who have uh, been exposed to the teaching that the church will be taken out of the world, be raptured before the great tribulation, this verse makes it very clear that is not true. It says this group that you just looked at, this group that's bigger than you can imagine, these are those that came up out of the great tribulation, meaning they were in the great tribulation. Furthermore, it was in the great tribulation that they washed their robes and were made white in the blood of the Lamb. Many of these will have become martyrs in the midst of this. Many of them will be washed spiritually only. But this, this is talking about the great harvest at the end of the age, the great revival that's going to happen. It's actually in the context, not limited to, but it's in the context of the great tribulation. That's a tremendous thought that there's going to be so many people giving their lives to Jesus in the midst of the most difficult time of human history. And they will be led to Jesus by Jesus's friends. They're not going to just suddenly have an epiphany and come to Jesus them, by themselves. That has never been the way that it has gone. Uh, the way that people come to know the Lord is, Someone that knows the Lord leads them to the Lord. Now, our typical thought when we think about harvest is... Uh, we immediately go to the revival of the lost, and that's right. It's just incomplete. And we're gonna see in this section and others uh, that, uh, that that's not the only thing that's going on. Now, I'm using the term one billion souls. That number may be wrong. Uh, I think, you know, if it right now, in fact, I, I look today, the number of uh, human uh, population on the earth is set to head to over eight billion uh, in the month of November this year. So it's not inappropriate to say we have gotta about 8 billion people on the earth right now because it's slated that in November of this year it's going to go to 8 billion people. So using that number, 8 billion... One billion would be an eighth of the human population coming into the kingdom. Now, I use that number a billion because we need a big number to talk about because it says it's a number that nobody can count from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And if we're looking at that right now, and that verse you know, that we read out of Revelation, uh, uh, chapter, I believe it was chapter 7, about that number that nobody could count coming from every tribe and language and nation, you're looking at that number happening while the population of the earth is what it is now or bigger, because it hasn't happened yet. So a number coming out of eight billion people that nobody could count, but we know how many people are on the earth, there's eight billion. So a big number. So I'm using the number a billion. Number. Another reason I'm using that number, there have been a number of prophetic voices, which you know, it's subjective, but I believe it, especially because it's come from so many. A number of different prophetic voices that have gotten that number, a billion souls at the end of the age that will come into the kingdom. I think it's a believable number, but whether that's the right number or the wrong number really isn't my point. The point is it's gonna be a big number, okay? But if it is a billion, then you're talking about one-eighth of the human population coming into the kingdom in a very short period of time. That is going to be wild. I mean, that is the most unthinkable thing imaginable related to normal human life. Okay, so right now, let's just go with how things are right now. Right now, you've got some people that are committed to Jesus. It's a small number. You've got some people that are committed to church, but not committed to Jesus. It's actually a pretty big number you got some people that are committed to not be committed to church you've got some people that are committed to be against the church and then you got some people that are straight-up committed against God in the earth right now so five categories you might even come up with a few more my point is right now what if one out of eight people that you were walking down the street next to you had just recently given their life to Jesus that would every coffee shop would be a buzz Every household, every oh my goodness, every family reunion is half mad, half glad, and half sad. I mean, there's just there's just so much going on in all the social you know situations and and churches. And my halves have three, so that's that's how I get that way. So uh so so anyway, in every social institution, everything that's going on in the earth, there's this there's this ruckus. And not only that, these kids in the kingdom they come to Jesus and they are on fire. They are anointed of the Holy Spirit and they are idiots. Just because you gave your life to Jesus does not mean you're a smart person. I can remember the dumbest things I said when I came to know Jesus. The things, oh my gosh, the things I said. Now I just imagine if I would have been anointed with power and how much more trouble I would have gotten into. We're talking about kids with guns in this situation, okay? It's going to be a wild scenario where one-eighth of the human population just got saved, and they got a bright countenance, and they don't know anything yet. They're going to need discipleship. They're going to be making messes. They're going to be causing problems. Church growth is going to be through the roof. Churches have no idea how to handle that kind of influx. No church on the planet is ready for that. No church is ready, and so infrastructures are breaking, and then people are going, "Man, I'm trying to get discipled around here." There's not enough disciplers, and and people that have known the Lord for you know three months are now suddenly pastors to try to help the ones that got saved yesterday. I mean, there's going to be it's going to be a tremendous thing. So when we think about that revival, let's also just kind of you know hold on to our butts a little bit on that one. That's going to be an intense moment, okay? But a time is coming where across the earth. There will be elation and jubilee. There will be people that have been coming to know the Lord. Look at Isaiah 24, I just give you this passage, kind of a fun one. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the west, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. So think Jerusalem-centric here, Isaiah, prophesying in Israel, from the west. So as far west as America all right, from the west, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. So now imagine all the eastern nations that are giving glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. Now the islands are giving glory. From the ends of the earth, we hear singing glory to the righteous one. This is coming. And I'll tell you a significant part of this happening is gonna be when an eighth of the population, again, if that's the number, when a billion souls or whatever the number, when a billion people give their life to Jesus, this whole planet is gonna be an uproar of singing and elation. Just think about how much joy there was in your life when you just recently gave your life to Jesus and you realized what that meant about your eternity. You realized what that meant about your daily portion in life and about just the meaning of life. I mean, you were so filled with thanksgiving, songs are gonna burst forth all over the earth. That is gonna be a tremendous time And this occurs before Christ comes. His harvest is before he comes. When Jesus arrives, the rules change. When Jesus arrives, he's going to judge wickedness. He's going to, uh, he's going to rapture the redeemed, so the church is going to be caught up to be with him. But then there's still going to be others that for the entire millennial period are going to be giving their lives to Jesus. But when they do that, they're not going to get a resurrected body immediately. They're not going to get to experience what you and I are going to get to experience as we march forward towards Jesus uh, all the way until he comes. This is This is actually all about him getting as many as he can into his glorious inheritance. This revival, this you know harvest that, that we're talking about, rather this right of revival before harvest is all about the family growing, about everybody coming into the inheritance in Christ. Look at these verses at the top of page three in your notes talking about his inheritance. This is what it's after, he's after. This is what the revival is really unto. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance inheritance in the saints. This is the, the father's perspective. This is Jesus's perspective. His inheritance in us. He gets us. We're his inheritance. He loves that and he wants that inheritance to be as big numerically as possible and he is planning a grand revival. I'm telling you, this is the most epic strategy ever of how to get the most amount of people to become his inheritance. He has a a strategy and he is committed to it. Luke uh, 14 says this, go out quickly to the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in. So that my house will be full. We're talking about a revival that is going to see the the uh, the house of God filled. People being compelled from every angle. It's going to be really awesome. This is revival. We we think about revival and we think about people and we think about man. Our life would get better. We think about man. That'd be cool to see revival. All of that is true and is totally secondary. God's thinking. What about me? I want my inheritance. Go compel them so I can get a bigger family. Those are mine. Those are my people. Now, let's move to the next piece, the rapture of the redeemed. Again, rapture means being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. This next section describes the rapture of the church when Christ will gather to himself the elect of the earth... And that then begins the heavenly procession, or rather that's at the beginning of the heavenly procession where Jesus marches out of heaven with all the armies coming to earth. I don't know if you knew this or not. Jesus is coming to the earth. Jesus isn't gonna stick his head through the clouds and say, hey everybody, come up here and let's hang out in heaven for a while. Jesus is coming back to the planet. He's coming back. And when he comes back, it says we will meet the Lord in the air. The reason we're meeting him in the air is because he's coming. He's coming. We don't go up into heaven when we're raptured. We go meet him in the air, and he's coming to the earth. And now we've got a resurrected body with him as he comes. All right. Well, let's look at this passage in Revelation 14. This is the first part of a a two-part passage we're going to read. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the white cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. This one who's on the cloud, I mean, it, I think it's unmistakable that it's Jesus. reason for that is all of the descriptive language about who it is that's on this cloud, what his name is, what he's wearing, what he's doing. I give you a bunch of passages there, one, two, three, four, that describe other places where it's clearly Jesus that is doing these things, has this title, is operating this way. So this is Jesus taking his sickle across the earth and bringing about that great harvest. It's the rapture of the church. The earth is ripe, it says. This is the moment. It's it's never been ripe before. You know, you think about fruit, and I don't know a lot about this. I just know I don't like to eat overly ripened fruit, and I don't like to eat underly ripened fruit. I don't like either. I want that banana just right. When you eat a fruit, or rather when, it, when a fruit becomes ripe, there's this, there's this season, there's this moment where it's right, it's right to eat it. It's ripe to eat it. it. It wasn't ready before, and a period of time is actually going to come where it, it will have been ripe for you know too long. When it becomes ripe, this is the moment that the Father has been waiting for. We know that verse in Matthew twenty four thirty six. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. This is the Father knowing the ripe moment when the harvest is ripe. And it's at that moment that he's gonna say, okay, son, take out that sickle and reap, let's do this thing. Now, the Lord of the harvest is the, uh, one of the titles of Jesus that we have. And this is Jesus who is gathering his harvest. And he, uh, but it's not just enough that somebody heard the gospel and gave their life to Jesus because the harvest occurs in the midst of the great tribulation or rather at the uh, tail end of it. So what it really means is it was somebody that gave their life to Jesus and then stayed in the purposes of God as in they didn't take the mark of the beast, as in they didn't deny Jesus. Jesus said, if you deny me, I'll deny you. They don't deny Jesus during the great tribulation. They don't take the mark of the beast and so therefore wind up in a different position. The great harvest, we gotta understand this is to be celebrated in a profound way because this isn't people that got saved. This is people that got saved and stayed committed to God. That's beautiful. This and the pressure will be intense. You know, I, you've ever heard the term farewell, fair friends, you know, those that were with you when things were good, but as soon as things were bad, they jet. That is a disheartening reality. That is one of life's great disappointments. And the Lord, not that he was, you know, had any doubt about how things would play out. He actually wants to give every one of his friends the opportunity to show themselves faithful. And so this harvest isn't those that just got saved. It's those that got saved and stayed in the purposes of God in the midst of the great tribulation. And then they will be harvested from the earth. That is, that is awesome. All right. Let's keep going. Number four, top of page four, the reaping of the reprobate. Since I've already told you what that means, I'm just going to jump in. The final generation is going to be full of people who will refuse to repent no matter how many reasons they are given to repent. They will have made a wholehearted commitment to evil that at this point is irredeemable. Therefore, there'll be nothing left for this group except the fearful expectation of judgment and eternal fire that's reserved for the enemies of God. Now let's read the second part of this harvest passage because it's interesting that all the harvest language is there. So every time we think harvest, we're only thinking revival and, and the saved. But the second part of this harvest, so now when we think harvest, we gotta be thinking about the whole picture because the second part of this harvest is dealing with the wicked. Another angel came out of his temple. Now, this is Revelation 14, verse 17. This is the very next verse. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel called out in a loud voice to him Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vines, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle over the earth, gathered its grapes, And threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside of the city. And blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Horses' bridle, call it five feet tall. uh, 1,600 stadia, it's 180 miles. Blood, five feet high for 180 miles. This is really intense. That's going to equal a lot of dead dudes and ladies. They don't get out of this one either. This is the second part of the harvest though. Same kind of concept. Get out your sickle, get the grapes, reap the harvest. The harvest is ripe. This harvest is ripe too. So a minute ago we were looking at the harvest of the righteous and that was a good ripe. This harvest is a bad uh, ripe. And we see here that the term reaping is now not just referring to good situations only, but also to bad at the end of the age. Its grapes are ripe. Daniel put it this way. the, The Holy Spirit revealed to Daniel in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. If you don't catch the context there, it's actually the rise of the Antichrist. But it's interesting that the Antichrist doesn't come and make the world wicked. The Antichrist comes more or less like this. The spirit of the age and the harlot cry, come Lord Antichrist. And he comes. And when he comes, he is coming to a people that have already become completely wicked. They are already a completely wicked generation, which is why he is so welcomed in their midst. And uh, so I just put that on there, completely wicked, you could call it ripe, okay? Swung his sickle on the earth. This is going to be a process of people dying, specifically in the seven bowls of God's wrath, then in the final battle of Armageddon and all the circumstances that surround it and follow it. There is a, a series. It's while this sickle is going to come down and is going to throw these men into the, the wine press of God's wrath, there's a series of, of uh, judgments and a series of realities starting with the seven bowls of wrath... Which the seven bowls of wrath start at the same time that the uh, that the redeemed go up, and that is right before the seven bowls of wrath or rather at the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet. Seventh trumpet happens. The church is raptured out. That's the end of the uh, three and a half year period. Now the bowls of wrath get released. And so it's, it's sickle, sickle, sickle harvest of the righteous, sickle harvest of the wicked. But the wicked, it's the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And here they are, they're thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God. And then they wind up at the battle of Armageddon, at least all the armies do then the, the rest of them are ra- uh, rounded up. It's really intense and they're thrown into the wine press of God's wrath. Gave you a little bit there on the, uh, the uh, 1600 stadia, part E. Skipping down to other accounts of this battle <laughs> where we wind up with probably hundreds of millions of people. I mean, just doing the math, it's very difficult to figure out exactly how this is gonna work because the human body only has so much blood in it, and it's clear that this is human blood that is uh, coming forth in this battle. So, how do you get that much blood? How many people is that? How are they like drained or what? I mean, it's not just that they die. It's that their blood is spilled because their blood creates this uh, 180-mile river or, or canal or whatever it is. It's really intense. I'll give you just a little bit of information there. But let's talk about this same battle, the Battle of Armageddon, which is the final part of the seven bowls of God's wrath. Let's talk a little bit about it. First, let's see, look at Ezekiel, and then we'll look at Isaiah. Because both of them are describing this unbelievable army. Now, just think about how long ago this is, that these guys had this kind of clarity. On that day, I'll give Gog a burial place in Israel in the valley of those who travel east towards the sea. It will block the way of travelers because Gog and all of his hordes were buried there, will be buried there. It will be called the Valley of Gog For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them In order to cleanse the land, all the people of the land will bury them. And on that day that I am glorified, I will make a a memorial day for them, declares the sovereign Lord. Just want you to think about that. All the people of Israel at that point working their tails off for seven months to bury the dead. That is a really massive effort. Uh, Just a little point that I was thinking about. Now, some of you would be like, I don't really know what you're talking about. We know that the river of the water of life flows out of Jerusalem and it flows east. I think that that's interesting because what it allows for, because the river water of life, wherever it flows, it's gonna bring life and cleansing and healing. It's flowing east. But this nasty blood pit is to the left. It's to the west. And it's actually gonna be above sea level. So when, when the, the whole thing is, this nasty reality is probably going to remain this way for a little while because the river of the water of life is flowing east down into the Araba. Whereas this is all occurring on the west side of Jerusalem uh, towards the Mediterranean Sea. So if, you lo- if I lost you there, just it's okay. It's not a big point. Um, Isaiah 34 Come near you nations and listen, pay attention you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that uh, is in it, the world and all that has come out of it the lord is angry with all nations his wrath is upon all their armies he will totally destroy them he will give them over to slaughter their slain will be thrown out their dead bodies will send up a stench the mountains will be soaked with their blood this is the description of what's occurring right there that the uh, the revelation you know passage in chapter 14 about the slain everywhere and and the blood up to the horse's bridle for 180 miles this is going to be really intense all the nations of all the armies gathered together nothing like that has ever occurred before it's unbelievable all right i'm going to keep going roman numeral five jesus talked about this two-fold harvest and go man i was always thinking the harvest was just a good thing Jesus uh, told a little bit about this, actually a lot about this, in Matthew chapter 13, and I want to read this passage to you, because this is Jesus giving us the same picture. He's describing the same scenario, the one-two version of harvest. Here it is. Jesus told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. His disciples said, explain to us the parable. And he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their fathers. All who has ears, let them hear. Now this is both good and bad being sown into the the field. Let both grow till harvest. Jesus said at the end of the age, there's the use of the harvest sickle again in this passage. We see that there are sons of the evil one. There's there's harvester uh, harvest uh, in occurring in in two forms: the wicked and uh, the the redeemed. And it, it's interesting that the way that uh, that this is going to go is. The sons of the evil one, just how, how clear it's going to be who these are uh, at the end of the age. It's going to be so obvious. Revelation 13, 16 through 17 tells us that it uh, forced all people to receive the mark on their hand and on their foreheads. The mark is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So you're going to have this whole group of people that are identified as weeds, they will have the mark of the beast and they are weeds at the end of the age to be harvested. It's interesting that it says that the harv- the, a- the harvesters are the angels. And there's gonna be activity of angels both to pick up the saints. It says that the, the angels are gonna be released to bring the saints up. So the angels are gonna be useful for the harvest, the, uh, the rapture of the church. The angels are gonna be useful in the harvest of the wickedness. That's what the 21 judgments are all about. Is the angels are, are actively involved in the judgments of God being released against the wicked during the whole tribulation period, not to mention uh, the, the bowls of wrath at the end. And so all of that is going to be weeding out of the earth. It's going to be tossing men into hell. Uh, it's going to be uh, the, the, a great measure of the activity of angels involved in both parts of the harvest. So anyway, I just wanted you to see that. We're going to break up into groups here in just a minute. But I wanted you to see how Jesus actually already taught us in Matthew chapter 13 about this twofold harvest. So whenever you start talking about the harvest from just a a biblical perspective, it's fine if we want to keep using our American cliches. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but biblically, the harvest is a twofold reality. It's the wicked and the righteous being harvested, okay? All right, let's break up into groups. Great question. Okay, so in the uh, Matthew chapter 13 passage uh, where Jesus is describing the wheat and the tares, they grow up uh, until the end of the age, the specific statement is made, uh, don't pull them up yet because if you do, you'll actually uh, wind up pulling up some of the, uh, the wheat as well. But at the end of the age, that's not how that's going to go. It's going to it's going apply differently if you wait until the end, okay? Part of this is actually how is it that God is going to pull up the weeds at the end? He's going to send the worst judgments that the earth has ever seen on the wicked. So it's actually a timing uh, scenario where he's like the earth is not ready for those judgments yet. It's not time for those things because that's actually the context because the two harvests happen at the end of the age and the context is rapture of the church bulls of wrath battle of armageddon uh and then the tribunals at the end of the age so you've got you've got the most intense scenarios ever and god's like no no we're we're not doing that yet in fact if you started to do that you would be releasing judgments that specifically the seal of god which is put on the saint's forehead in Revelation chapter 7 hasn't happened yet if we're talking about Jesus talking long before Revelation is written. You tracking? And so there are some details related to the judgment. The weeding isn't the end. The weeding is the judgments, the, the work of the angels. And remember, when the angels go to bad guys, it's judgments. When the angels go to good guys, it's rapture. And so he's actually describing, uh, no, we're not gonna release those judgments yet. It's not time. Let's let both of them grow to ripe. You think that's bad, just wait to, for a while. They're gonna get so much worse. You think those guys down there, the righteous ones, you think they're doing good? Just give it a minute. They are gonna shine like the brightness in the heavens if you just let these two things grow to the fullness of ripening. And so, uh, so great question, which actually even then ties in some of the judgment passages. So great. Okay, over here. Yeah. Great question. All right, so uh, in the uh, Ezekiel passage that we read, Ezekiel 39, it talks about the seven months of the house of Israel will be burying all of the dead that are just to the west of them in the uh, valley of Armageddon, okay, Armageddon. and. Uh, and it says it's going to take all of them doing that. But then it says all the people of the land will bury them. Uh, the question is, who are all these people and how is there more than five? Um, so there's, when, when Jesus comes, there's three groups of people. And it's important that we understand all three of these because the end times don't make a lick of sense from the Bible unless we understand all three groups of people. So it's really a, a great question. Group one, those that have taken the mark of the beast. They are going to be executed. Every single one of them is going to be executed and thrown into the lake of fire at some point. That's group one. Group two is the redeemed, that's the saved, that's the, the church, those that have walked with Jesus, they, they did not love their lives even uh, you know, unto death, they, they walked with Jesus through the uh, perils of the great tribulation, it was tremendously difficult. But there is a third group of people that, because we like the term redeemed, reprobate, and resistors, we named them resistors because we like that three R thing, okay? Resistors, the real term in the Bible is those who are left. That's those who remain. Here it is. You see this group, you know, th- those that were, what's the language? Uh, um, you know, all the people in the land. And so it's the, but the, uh, the term that's used multiple times is those who remain or those who are left. And the reason we call them resistors is because somehow they made it through the entire great tribulation period. And they said, I am not worshiping some dude from Europe or the middle East and calling him God. I'm not doing it. You cannot make me worship the antichrist. I won't do it. I don't like that guy, he's got a bad spirit. But they also say, I don't want your Jesus. I'm not a religious man. I do not want anything to do with Jesus. You guys are a bunch of religious nuts. I don't want him, you can't make me. They have resisted the two most powerful forces in their greatest you know, level of authority and, and you know, uh, strength that has ever been. And they've resisted and said, no, I'm not giving my life to Jesus and I'm for sure not worshiping that other guy. I'm not worshiping anybody. I'm just going to stay whatever I am. Y'all are a bunch of crazy people. I'm an agnostic. I don't even know if any of this is real. And they're going to make it through the Great Tribulation. And the only reason we know that is because there's so many passages that talk about them. Now, this is not like one-third, one-third, one-third. That's not how this works. In fact, if you want to get more strategic about the numbers, these are bad math numbers, which I am notorious for. Uh, I want to give you more like, you know, like 80% reprobate are gonna to go to hell, they're gonna take the mark of the beast, okay? 19.99999% are gonna give their life to Jesus and they're gonna wind up redeemed at the end. And then whatever, you know, 00001 percent some millions, out of 8 billion, or maybe it's going to be 10 billion by the time we get to the end of this thing. Some millions, but I mean, we are talking about millions of people out of billions of people, this isn't a percent. This is like way less than 1% of the population, but they will be there. In fact, it says one of the things that's going to happen when Jesus comes back is one of the major endeavors of the earth as part of the Kick off of the millennial kingdom, even before the millennial kingdom starts, it's all part of that 45-day procession thing or uh, uh, period. If I lost you there, don't worry about it. Before the millennium starts, one of the big initiatives is Jesus says, go get my family, go get all the Jews. I want all the Jews from the planet, all of them, the ones that didn't take the mark of the beast, right? And the ones that didn't worship you, right? There's going to be a bunch of Jews that don't do either. And he's going to say, go get all of them and bring them back here. This is home. Go get them. And it's going to be one of the big initiatives that kicks off the millennial rule of Jesus is go get my family. Go get Jews. I'm Jewish. They're Jewish. Those are my brothers and my sisters. And when they get here, they're going to have the surprise of their life when they find out I'm Jewish and I'm God and I'm real and they better get saved right now. And they will. They will. And they will be elated because they're going to be warned on the way by either a resurrected saint with a resurrected body, maybe accompanied by angels, or maybe one of these other resistors that just saw all the things unfold and gave their life to Jesus. Like, Jesus, how can I serve you? He says, well, go to, you know, wherever, wherever Awania, and get the Jews there and bring them back. And so there's going to be, uh, by the time that this verse happens... All the people of the land, I believe, is going to be 100% hundred percent of the human population that are in the resistor category from across the earth will be back in Jerusalem and in Israel, helping Jesus jumpstart the planet again. Let's get all the humans back. Let's not spread our human resources across the planet. Six of you over there, a hundred over there, you know, twenty-five over there. That's ridiculous. We'll never get anything done. Let's get everybody to Israel and rebuild Israel first. Let's get let's get all the Jews back here, and then let's rebuild Israel from all the people that are in that resistor category from all the different tribes, languages, tongues, and nations. So again, go do a, a Google search, or not Google, a Bible gateway search on, well, the Google search will get you probably an interesting answer. Those who are left or those who remain, depending on the translation. There's a number of passages that talk about it, And this is actually one of those passages. It's just, it's defining that people group without using that specific phrase. But you've got, this is, this is not an isolated passage. There are a number of these that are very clear. Wait a minute. This means there are people that didn't get saved and didn't take the mark of the beast. Right, exactly. That's the group of people that Jesus is going to start the millennium off with because there are going to be lots and lots and lots and lots of babies born in the millennium and they won't be to anybody with a resurrected body. The Lord is going to repopulate the earth's the human you know population with these resistors. They're going to have babies. It says they're going to live hundreds of years and stuff. So all part of the millennial reality. Okay, great, great questions. Okay, well, worship team leader Somebody, you can come on up. Uh, I will give you guys some good news here. There are now, unless we have some tragic thing happen with the uh, recordings. There are now no more surprise nights like this one. Uh, We'll do uh, number 112 next week, and we've got a total of 115 sessions. So we are nearing the end here of the book of Revelation. So Father, we thank you so much for just your help, God leading us and and giving us uh, so much clarity in this study. We pray that you would continue to, that we would have spirits that are bright and open and receptive and that you would pour into us. When we gather and we talk about this this tremendously important subject, the book of Revelation, we pray for your grace to rest on us in Jesus' name. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.